right, I want to start out the three things I want you to hear. First off, your child is going to mess up in this category. Your child is going to sin sexually. Sadly, about 80% of Christians have sex before marriage. And, um, you know, 25-30% of teenage girls look at pornography on a regular basis. And, uh, I mean, you know, I think probably 90% of teenage boys are looking at pornography. Um, I think that going through school, I knew I met two men along the way who had never looked at pornography. Uh, never had a struggle with it. Two, two men. And I ran, I've ran in like conservative Christian circles my whole life. So, so you just need to understand that your child's going to mess up, and your child's going to mess up, and um, so preemptively, when we talk about this, hey, Margaret, you can see, um, preemptively, you need to already be preaching grace and God's forgiveness to your child um, all along the way. Uh, you know, because the, the, real, the real enemy is shame, because shame just makes issues in this category much, much worse. Second thing you need to hear is that uh, your child is not going to want to, um, you know, obey God's law in the realm of, of anything, but especially sexuality, unless they believe that God has their best interest in hand, unless they believe that God is doing it because he loves them, he cares about them, he wants to protect them, and he wants what's best for them. Um, the law is completely powerless. It says in the Bible, the, just trying to scare the crud out of them is not, that's just not, that's not an effective strategy. We're going to look at that as we go through this. And the third thing is that, you know, your child, especially when you have a teenage boy, um, your child it wants to have sex. They want to do that. And boys and girls, they think about it a lot. And here's the thing, and this is, we'll, we're going to develop this a lot at the end, but you need to affirm that desire and help them understand that their desire is not a bad thing. But you really need to help them understand that their desire for sex is really a desire for intimacy, and it's a desire to be validated as a person. That's really, and, and the culture, talk about this more, but the culture is telling them the only place you'll find validation, the only place you'll find intimacy is sex. Sex, 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 sex. And in reality, that is completely false. And so, um, so we can't just say don't. We have to say, actually, that's a good thing that you desire that and you find that in Jesus and in community and friendship, in addition to sex with your spouse when you get married. So, so anyhow, so those are the, th the three things I want you to hear. That's right out of the bat, uh, right, um, right out of the gate. Um, so just a, a quick little introduction. You know, what we really want for our children, we don't, you know, we say, like, I just want my kids to be happy, and that's just not true. What we really want for our kids is that they'll be satisfied and they'll be content and they'll have a meaningful life. Um, and so, since there's a, uh, how many people here are familiar with Brene Brown? Hey, uh, no problem. Um, Brene Brown, hey, so glad to see you. Thanks for coming. Yeah. Um, so, um, Brene Brown, is, she's a, a professor of social work, uh, I think at the University of Houston. But she's, most known as a, she's most known as an author and a, um, and a, and a speaker, and she's phenomenal. And uh, she's, done, uh, uh, she's done a TED's talk on vulnerability. It's one of the best things I've ever heard. Uh, but she studied basically people who have dysfunctional lives as compared to people who she describes as having wholehearted lives. Um, and so she found that 
the, the, the thing that separated the groups, the, mo the most powerful indicator, was a sense of connectedness. If people had a sense of connectedness in their life, spiritually, with other people, then that tends, tended to promote a like, more fruitful, healthy, flourishing life. Um, and so the thing, something that's interesting is that God's law is inherently relational. I, I, it's funny, I said this is a revolutionary thought until like three or four years ago. But, you know, what do we say is the summary of the law? Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. So, with that being said, God's law promotes healthy, intimate, flourishing relationships with God, with other people, and with ourselves. You know, love your neighbor as yourself. Yourself is mentioned in that. And so, so living our life within the confines of God's law is something that's going to promote a more healthy, healthy relationship with God's self and, um, and others. And so if you think about, like, for example, pornography. Pornography, uh, in terms of relationship to self, creates shame. Uh, as, as it pertains to relationship with other people, it promotes objectification, that you're an object for my use, for my desire, on my terms. It's all about me, and I use you. That's what that's what it that's what it says. And in terms of God, I don't think I've ever heard of anyone who has grown closer to the Lord and has worshipped the Lord in their heart as a product of looking at porn. So you can see how sexual sin inherently creates isolation and dysfunction in in all three of those relationships. And so um, so so that's what, that's just kind of a, a starting point there. Um, so the first thing I'm going to say here is that you know we really want to have a positive tone when it comes to talking about sex with our kids. Um, and we'll get into talking about how we handle talking about consequence as compared to talking about benefit, how the world does it, and how the church does it, and where the flaws are there. But right off the bat, when I talk to kids about sex, I always say we don't we will not start a talk about sex with students unless we say that sex is a gift from God. Sex is a good thing that God gave you. It's mentioned in the first two pages of the Bible. It is, it's a gift. And, um, and so, you, yeah, you need to understand that it's, it is something to be enjoyed. Um, and uh, the, the problem is that because of sin, because of the fall, uh, with any good gift, we have a propensity to misuse it. And so consequently, there are consequences and there are benefits. So anything and everything, whether it's work, whether it's alcohol, whether it's food, there are ways that we misuse it and there are ways that we enjoy it. One glass of wine after work, that's a nice thing. A couple of, glass of, couple of glasses of wine at a wedding, that's a nice thing. Six glasses of wine, never been a good idea in any context, right? And, uh, you know, and it speaks to it pretty, um, in Romans 1, it speaks to it, um, you know, in a, in a very clear terms. It says, talks about how um, God gave, uh, sorry, for although they knew God, he's talking about uh, basically pagan culture, they did not honor him or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up their lust and of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. So our propensity is to take good things that God has given them and to make them ultimate things, to take things that are creation and to turn them into God and, and, and expect that those things are going to fulfill for us what only God can fulfill. 
And so that, that's just the nature of idolatry. So that's why there's just the nature of the beast and anything in life, anything good that God gives us, is that there is a balance between there's consequence for misuse that we have to be aware of and there's benefit to be enjoyed. And so with, um, when it comes to the secular world as compared to the... Um, hold on one second. Here we go. Okay, so as it pertains to how the secular world versus the church talks about sexual, sex, sexuality in general. The secular world tends to minimize consequence. If you just wear a condom, everything's going to be fine, right? That's the only, that's that, if you do that or you take birth control, then there won't be any consequence. You're going to be totally fine, right? Um, in terms of benefit, the secular world majorly overstates majorly overstates the benefit of sex, how good it is, how satisfying it is. Um, so focusing on, focusing on this first, in terms, of, um, in terms of minimizing, the secular world is especially bad about talking about the negative emotional consequence of having premarital sex um, or having sex and having sex promiscuous, yeah, promiscuously. Um, so... Um, and just to be clear, like where I'm coming from on like what is, you know, what is biblical in terms of sex, um, you know, no sex before marriage. And then if kids ask me how far is too far, sorry, about to get awkward, I say no one has an orgasm, no one takes off their clothes, and no one's touched in an area where you'd be wearing a modest bathing suit. Um, that's kind of what I say as far as, you know, what we're running for. Is, are many people going to live up to that? Not very likely, but I think that that in terms of what's, what's, you know, a lot of times kids just want a concrete border, and that's what I say. Um, that's what I say in terms of a boundary as far as how far is too far with your girlfriend. But in going back to this, to this chart here um, in terms of consequence and benefit, so the secular world tends to minimize uh, emotional consequence of, like, you know, sexual sin. Um, if you look at movies, you know, two people hook up, they have sex, no big deal, right? Movie Weekend in Vegas hook up, have sex, no biggie. Anchorman, Veronica, Ron, you know, first date, end of the date, he says, what if just for a night, you know, we're not co-workers but co-people, you be a woman, I'll be a man, that's all. Just for a night, right? And so there's no, there's no talk of the like emotional uh, and relational messiness, regret, shame that comes from it. Interesting, of teenagers who have had sex before marriage, Guess what percentage of them said that they regret it and they wish that they had, they, had, they had made a decision to wait until marriage? 67%. That's a, that's a, a survey of secular people, not of church people. Um, and then uh, there's a book called Unprotected. It was written, some of you may have heard of it, but it was written by a woman who is a psychologist on a college campus. And um, she was finding that so much of the depression and self-harming behavior and anxiety, a lot of it was a product of um, men and women, women in particular, having like deep, deep regret from, being, um, from engaging in casual sex. And she, was, uh, she wrote the book anonymously because she felt she had to from a standpoint of her safety because she said that there is such an intense culture of um, kind of like, political correctness in the university system, but just of sexual permissiveness, that no one wants to talk about the consequences of sex. Uh, in fact, she, this is one of the quotes from her book. She says, I want to, I want, she's, now, she's at, she was at Columbia, 
and she, um, the Columbia had this service called Ask Alice, where people could ask questions about you know, anything in life, but in particular about sex. And so this is what the university, she, so she was like so mad that the university basically said having multiple partners, sleeping around, um, was basically something that was good for you. It was something that would like lead to self-actualization and ultimate well-being. And here she wrote, she said, I want to understand how in the face of national pandemics of herpes and HPV, these quote-unquote health experts can advise a high school senior who already had three boyfriends to continue to experiment and explore her sexuality, claiming that doing so will, quote, only add to her future well-being and peace of mind. Um, exactly what study I would like to know demonstrated that. And to the freshman who is wondering whether to lose her virginity or um, lose her virginity to a boy she's only known for three weeks, Ask Alice said, three days, three weeks, three months, three years. There's no right time to have your first intercourse. So basically, just ba there's a total in the, in the secular world. There's a total minimization of the emotional consequence of having of having premarital sex. Okay. Now in terms of the benefit. The secular world tends to overstate the benefit, the enjoyment, the satisfaction of having sex. The, um, sir, would you mind go hit my computer and turning on the, that song? There's this, um, there is this song that's pretty popular around teenagers right now uh, by an artist named Hozier called Take Me to Church. Sounds like a good Christian song, right? What, this church, what the song is actually about is it's about uh, the church is his girlfriend's bedroom. And uh, you'll see the lyrics up here on the, up on the screen. But you can see how he is going to paint sex as like the ultimate experience you can have. Oh, can you pause it? I didn't hook it up to, um, I didn't hook it up to the sound system. <laughs> I didn't turn the sound system on. Here, my bad. Maybe we should just take it over the table. Hmm. I didn't play it, sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, let's see if this works. I think it's already in. Yeah, you know what? Let's just... just I'm just going to take this out. Okay. I'm just going to okay. put it... It's all good. I'm just going to put it on the table. You'll get the gist. Just a few lines in here. Okay, so you can listen to this. It's got the lyrics in there. Sorry for those you can't see. Tells me, worship in the bedroom. The only heaven I'll be sent to is when I'm alone with you. Okay, now there's more to the song. The song's a little more complicated than that. But you can see right out of the gate this idea of I should have worshipped my lover sooner. Um, and she says, worship is in the bedroom. And then she, and he says, the only heaven I'll be sent to is when I'm alone with you. So basically, he is saying the ultimate in human experience is having sex, okay? And so, look, uh, sex is really a nice thing. 
It, it really is. It's a great gift. It's something enjoyable. It's just not that great. It's not, you know, if you were an insecure person and you go home and you have sex, you're going to still be an insecure person. If you don't like your job and you, you know, go home, have sex with your wife, you're still going to hate your job when you get up in the morning. Um, you know, it, it's, it's just, uh, and I, I think this is important. I think this is important to, like, I think it's important for us to use the culture. Turn, like, it really frustrates Satan when we turn the culture in on itself. And so when all this stuff that you're seeing, you know, that you're, that's on the TV and you're so frustrated and you just want to turn it off, well, yeah, turn it off, absolutely. But don't turn it off without explaining, what is the, okay, what is the world saying here? Ask your child, what, what are they saying about sex? Oh, they're saying there's no consequence. Let me just tell you, just not the case. Interesting, interesting quote here. This is a Harvard study from the 1970s after the sexual revolution. You know, a PhD um, did a study. He says, not long after the sexual revolution was underway, clinic, clinicians observed that the new sexual freedom was creating a psychological disaster on the campus. We began to study Harvard students who complained of emptiness and despondency. There was a gap between their social conscience and their morality they were practicing in their personal lives. They knew sexual permissiveness was leading to empty relationships and feelings of self-contempt. Many of these students were preoccupied with passing of time and with death. They yearned for meaning and for a moral framework. Um, when some of them moved away from moral wellness into a system of clear values, typically embracing a drug-free lifestyle and a stricter sexual code, they reported that their relationships with the opposite sex improved, as did relationships with their peers in general, and relationships with their parents and their academic performance. So anyhow, but, um, sorry. But anyhow, <laughs> when the, we need to undermine the culture to say, like, no, 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 there really is actually consequence. Like, it really does complicate relationships. It really, there, especially when you get dumped, when you've been sexually active with somebody, Boys and girls alike, uh, it is, it's, it's, very, it's very hard. It's very, very difficult. And there's a deep sense of betrayal um, as compared if you're having like a non-sexual relationship. Um, and then two, overstate, like, hey, bud, it's good, but it's not that good. I say that to boys in Bible study. I'm like, I get to have sex. I'm married. That's really nice. But it, and it's not like, it's not going to like change your life. All right. So now, so that's the secular world. And how it treats um, and how it treats sexuality. Now, the church has its own uh, its own set of issues. In terms of consequence, the church tends to overemphasize consequence. But I wouldn't even really say that that's the issue because you really you can talk about consequence a lot in a loving way. Um, what the church has a problem with is trying to basically use shame and fear to manipulate kids into good behavior. And, um, and shame, shame never does anything to really help anybody. Um, and, you know, there is a healthy level of fear that should come with that. I mean, um, yeah, there is a healthy level of fear in this. But uh, it's, it's not going to engender trust between a parent and a child or engender trust between a child and God. Uh, just to try to shame, to try to scare them, and here's the thing too, is they're gonna have a friend who's had sex, and the friend's gonna say, "Oh, seems kind of fun," or they're gonna have sex, and they're gonna be like, uh, "I actually kind of enjoyed that. That was actually kind of fun." And I'm not saying like you know absence of consequence, but if you like create this like unrealistic consequence, just try to terrify them, well. It's going to undermine your credibility, and they're not going to buy it. So, um, so anyhow, and so here's something that's interesting. Amongst sex addicts, 
um, whether that you know, sexual addiction looks like pornography or um, you know compulsive sex, anonymous sex, prostitutes, whatever it is, there's a strong correlation between sex addicts and growing up in an extremely strict, rigorous uh, religious environment, particularly as it comes to their sexual ethics. Um, I think if you were to talk to like sexual addiction counselors, most of them would say yes, they grew up in a fundamentalist type religious environment. Another characteristic of sex addicts is their parents never showed any affection in front of them and they, um, their parents never talked to them about sex. And if they did, it was only in terms of shame. And so, so here's the thing. The church, like for me, this was my experience. I grew up in a pretty, a very conservative religious environment. Um, no need to say the, the uh, very widespread denomination around here that I grew up in, especially on a quarter, but um, you can fill in the blanks. But basically, we called it the sex machine gun. We would come to church or youth group, and at least once a month, we would get a talk about don't have sex. Don't do it. Don't kiss your girlfriend. If you kiss her, it's just a peck. No making out. And it was just like all the time, all the time. Hammered. Don't, 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 don't. Okay? And so here's the, here's the problem. Especially what we're going to see here is, is the church tends to minimize the benefit of sex. Not talk about the good parts. Um, what happens is you create this association with sex and shame. Sex is bad. And so there are a lot of problems with that. But one of those is uh, it, it does, first off, it, doesn't, it does not uh, foster faith in God. Um, you, you know, it, it fosters an attitude of where I want to hide. And so if your child is struggling in some way sexually, if they're looking at pornography, um, if, if they've been abused sexually, if, um, if they've lost their virginity, if they're having sex with their boy, whatever it is, um, then they're, the, the, what they've been taught is that is in the dark. Keep that in the dark. This is a sin that you cannot recover from. God cannot forgive this. If you lose your virginity, you are damaged goods. You're contaminated. And so, and especially this language is often used with sex. What, what do they call the rings? And if your child has a ring, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not bashing your child or you. What do they call them? They call them purity rings, right? Well, interesting, we just went to a conference this weekend where there was a workshop about sex and contamination theology. And so our brain, when the language of purity is brought up, uh, tends to have this all-or-none type mentality. <clears throat> so, for example, if um, you are drinking punch at a party and someone comes in with a, a beaker and puts in one drop of urine, are you going to touch the punch for the rest of the night? Not a flippin' chance. No way, right? Now, scientifically speaking, is there, is there hardly any likelihood that you're actually going to get urine in your punch? No, there's not. Is, uh, and if there were, it's going to constitute, if it's just like a little drop, it's going to constitute like one one-thousandth of the content of that cup. But are, is anyone here going to drink from that punch bowl? Contaminated, right? And, and, and so we have this association with things being pure and impure. Okay, so when we use this language of purity, sexual purity, you want to be pure before marriage, what happens is, uh-oh, I sinned. Like, I had sex with somebody, I am damaged goods, I'm contaminated. And so that, and that creates this sense of separation from God, 
um, and the sense of two that like, well, I'm, I'm impure, so let's just throw caution to the wind. And so that's why Lauren Winter, who wrote the book Real Sex, she talks about how you do not want to talk about sex in terms of just virginity and not virginity. That's not the way you want to talk about it. You want to talk about it just more in terms of, um, of just like overall sexual formation um, and wanting to, uh, yeah, wanting, wanting uh, seeing it as a process and understand that people are going to screw up um, rather than like, just intercourse. If you have sex, it's over. You're not a virgin. It's done. Because statistics say most people are going to have sex before marriage. And you just you don't want someone to have sex and they're like, oh, well, it's over. And now I'm just going to sleep with whoever. Um, you want them to come back to the Lord, come back to their community, whether that's their parents, their youth minister, you know, whoever, whoever a healthy counselor is in their life. So, so that's what the church tends to do. Now, on the other side, the church tends to minimize the benefit. Um, the church tends to not talk about, well, first off, the, the church just tends to not talk about sex much at all. Um, and, and usually, like we said, only in negative terms. But here's the thing, like, sex is a gift from God. It's a good thing. And, and it's about to get really awkward, but I'm going to read you a little bit from Song of Solomon. This is the Bible. This is the Bible. This is not a cheap novel that you might pull off the shelf at the, at the you know, the, the, gro- the grocery store or the, or the Walmart. This is not soft porn. Like, this is the Bible. Uh, in, in Song of Solomon, chapter 7, uh, he, uh, he is, he's talking about... The Song of Solomon is a play from the Old Testament. It's about uh, to, you know, a man and a woman who are in love. And it, on an allegorical level, points, toward, to, points to the relationship between God and his people. And God's, the intimacy and, and deep passion of God's love for his people. Um, but here's it says... How beautiful are thy feet are your feet with shoes, O prince's daughter, the joints of your hips are like jewels, the work of, of the hands of a cunning workman. Okay? How is he able to see the joints of her thighs? She does not have any clothes on. Uh, then he says, Your navel is like a round goblet, which wanteth not liquor. The the Hebrew word is not navel. It is not navel. He is talking about her private parts. I'm just going to put it out there. And then, and I had, by the way, I had to translate, I translated this in Latin, I translated the Vulgate in college. I was one of four Latin majors at Wake Forest. And so it was just me and my 65-year-old teacher. And we got to that point, and she said, that, you know, she's like, he's actually talking about female genitalia. That's what it is in the Hebrew. And I was like, thanks, Dr. Pendergrass. This is not the most awkward moment of my entire life. But anyhow, and then he finishes verse where he says, your breasts are like two young rows. They're like twins. So he's, you know, really, this is a very graphic description of her body. Um, chapter 2, and he says this in chapter 8 as well. She says, his left arm is under my head and his right arm embraces me. She's talking about a sexual position. Okay, so this is, uh, so this is the Bible. The Bible is talking about sex, all right? Now, I'm not in any way encouraging to talk about sex in a way that trivializes it or marginalizes it like the culture does. The culture talks about it to a point where the, like, the sanctity of it, the preciousness of it, um, is, is completely robbed and depleted. Um, but uh, but it, is a, it is a good thing. It sets a good tone for both the church and for parents to, to talk about sex in a positive light with kids. And here's what it communicates. 
What it communicates is, I think most importantly, is that this is something good that God has given you to enjoy. And, and here's the thing, because if we don't understand that God loves us, if we don't understand that God desires to bless us, he desires to be gracious to us, then we're not going to trust him with the rules. We're going to be like Adam and Eve in the garden. That's how we naturally are. Um, and we're going to believe God is holding out on us, right? I mean, that's, that's, typically, that's typically for teenagers or college students who are Christians who have been taught, like, don't have sex before marriage. There really is this feeling of, like, why is God doing this to me? You know, if you're a 16, 17-year-old boy, you're like, why does God want to torture me? And, uh, and so, so, with that being said, it just reinforces that, like, God does not want to torture you. He's not, he's not being a jerk. He's not holding out. He actually really, really loves you. He wants you to enjoy this gift, but just in the right way. And here's your selling point, my friends. Ha, ha, ha. Love this statistic. This statistic. People who wait until marriage to have sex will have 35 to 40% more sex over the course of their life than people who have sex before marriage. Average person who has sex before marriage will have sex 3,500 times in their lifetime. Average person who waits until marriage to have sex will have sex more than 5,000 times in the course of their life. Who counted? Yeah, who's, yeah, who's, yeah, I don't know. But hey, it's scientific, it's scientific, and I am running with it. Absolutely running with it. Oh, no, it's, but, hey, but hey, I can remember, I can remember being in my early 20s, I was, I was, you know, like a salesman, and I, I sold in partnership with these guys who were older, they were in their 30s, they were in their 40s, and they did not know I was a Christian. They did not know that I was like waiting until marriage and that I'd not never that I'd never had sex until they would talk about it and they'd be like, Oh man, I'll tell you what the most powerful birth control is. The most powerful birth control is marriage. And they would like consistently talk about how like when they they had all the sex, you know, when they were dating and engaged and they got married and they just like never had sex anymore. And um and that was consistently and I can remember sitting at a table with like six men and they're all like, Oh my gosh, like I used to have sex like this many times a week before marriage, now, after marriage, we like may have sex like this many times a month. And, uh, and I was sitting here and I was like, I know this statistic. I know this statistic and I'm going to win this one. <laughs> but anyhow, on top of that, I know, sorry. But hey, that, that really preaches. That preaches to a teenage boy. It does. And it does kind of say, hey, God's law is in place for a reason. And look, hey, God wants you. I, I say, guys, this is my interest. My interest is for you guys to have the most sex possible and to have the most enjoyable sex possible. Another statistic, study by the uh, 2010 study by the Journal of Family Psychology found that couples who abstain from sex um, say that they have a more satisfactory sex life within marriage than couples who have had sex before marriage. Um, again, hard to quantify. I'm going to trust them. It was a survey of over 5,000 people. But... But again, I, I, guys, my interest is for you to have the most sex possible and to have the most enjoyable sex possible. And the, you know, the, the best way to go about that is to wait until marriage to have sex. And so what we're saying is, I'm on your side, God's on your side. We have your best interest in mind. So anyhow, um, so keeping it positive. Uh, now, where's my next page here? Lost it. Oh, okay. So, without all that being said, um, <coughs> um, la- last kind of last last point here is I said this earlier, but 
it is really important to affirm your child's desire for sex. The, the desire is not the problem. Desire is not the problem. It's the object of the desire. <clears throat> it's the way we go about trying to meet the desire. That's where the problem is. And so, you know, what is it that, what is it that um, you know, guys and girls want from sex, you know, like as a teenager, as a college student, as a young adult? Um, I think for boys, I can say, uh, I can let you chime in, um, <laughs> speak more from the girl standpoint. But for boys, they want intimacy. They want a sense of connectedness. And they want the validation that they're lovable. Like if someone will sleep with me, that means that I am worthy. I'm a lovable person. And, you know, it's interesting. This uh, One of the kind of textbooks on sexual addiction is called Lonely All the Time. And so, you know, sexual addiction is called, is, is, um, some would say, is an, a, an attachment disorder, which has to do with uh, problems with intimacy, a sense of isolation and disconnectedness. And so whether it's, you know, seeking to fix that in pornography, prostitution, or just premarital sex, like the, the issue at hand is loneliness. And so if you're only, and, and the desire is a sense of connectedness and intimacy, going back to what God's law, God's law promotes healthy, connected, intimate relationship with God's self and others. And so here's the thing. The, the problem is if you set up your shop only on the consequence square, if all you're saying is don't, 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 you're in no way helping your child meet that need. And so I can remember being, probably shouldn't confess this, being 16 years old and being like, oh my gosh, statistics say I probably won't get married for another 10 years. I'm going to die. And I wish that someone had said like, well, bro, look, here's the thing. And, and that felt real. <laughs> the, and, 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 and certainly there was a physiological part of it, you know, with hormones and adolescence. That's true. But I think the, the, the dominant issue is a heart level issue as far as like, oh, I'm going to be lonely until I'm 25. I'm going to feel insecure until I'm 25. And what I wish I had been told is I wish someone had deconstructed for me. The world says that intimacy is only found in sex. Like that's, if you want intimacy, then sexuality, that's the only category where that resides. And, you know, I, I wish I'd been told what was really going on at the heart level and to say like, hey, actually, um, you know, you'll find deeper satisfaction for your need for intimacy in your relationship with God and in, your, and in, in like good, healthy, vulnerable friendships and within your family. I wish someone had told me, given me a positive route, a positive non-sexual route to, um, to, like, to, to meet that need. And, I mean, hmm, being recorded. Hmm, the Jeopardy music's playing in the background. Um, you know, I, I, I think any person married or not married could say, like, there, is, there are times when you have sex when there's like not much intimacy, there's not a great sense of connectedness, and it's not particularly satisfying. And there are times when sex pours out of just good friendship and, and friendship and connectedness in your, in your marital relationship. And that's like far more satisfying. And so, um, and so that's all to say that sex is a nice way that God has given us to experience intimacy um, with our spouse. Uh, but it's, um, it is definitely not the primary way that we have our needs for intimacy met. Christianity is all about intimacy. 
The Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God exists as three persons who are one, oneness. Uh, when we become a Christian, when, uh, you know, when, when we come to God seeking forgiveness for sins, put our faith in Jesus as our Savior, we become one with God. This language of oneness is all over the Bible. And that's, that's like at the core of what humanity wants, is we want intimacy, connectedness, oneness. And that's what Jesus offers. He offers us participation in the life of the Trinity. Like that's, that's mind-boggling. And so, so, just to kind of reiterate the point for the 15th time, um, we need to help kids understand that what they really want is connectedness and intimacy, and we need to point them towards relationship with Jesus, relationship with others, and help them understand sex as a part of that category, but sex not as the entirety of that category. So that is pretty much all I have. Um, I think the la- the, I have like practical considerations, and I, there, it's, this is really just going to be repetitive, so I'm going I'm to rifle through it, and we can talk, and I'll turn off the recorder. Um, but first practical consideration, just talk about sex in positive terms. When you see the when you see the you know naughty material on the television when the Bachelorette is on, you know rather than just saying like, hey look the Bachelorette that is completely screwed up. Like I'm telling you, it is not satisfying her him or her sleeping with three different people in three nights. There is nothing satisfying about that. Like that is that is totally dysfunctional. Um, and you know. I mean, but, you know, sex is a really good, enjoyable thing. Like, that needs to be in there, too. But it's just not enjoyable done in that way. It's, it's enjoyable in the context of marriage. Um, it's most enjoyable because we don't, I mean, people who've had sex for marriage would probably say that sex is pretty darn enjoyable. Um, but just in terms of long-term, not, not satisfying. Um, next, kill the shame culture surrounding sex. Um, yeah, it just it is just elevated as this unforgivable sin, and I, I just think it is helpful to say like to really set up realistic expectations. Like you're probably gonna mess up, you know. And if you're a male, you're probably not gonna make it through an hour without having an inappropriate thought. Okay, so you you need to know that God's grace extends to sexual sin just like it extends to lying or judging. It's all it's all the same. Consequences may be a little bit different, but God's grace extends. God's forgiveness does. Three, um, include sex in the broader category of intimacy and connectedness. We covered that. And then I said again, drown this conversation with grace. Drown the conversation with grace. And, and we need that for ourselves too. Because, you know, whenever we have one of these talks, it's like, oh my gosh, like my husband and I, we never, ever, you know, never hug or kiss or whatever in front of our kids. Oh, we've blown it. I've never talked to my kids about sex. I've just screwed up so much. And like, the reality is your child was made to have a perfect parent. Your child was meant to be born in the Garden of Eden. And um, I don't know about you, but like the gap between me <laughs> as a person and me as a parent and perfection, like that's an endless cavern or in- endless chasm. It's, it never ends. And so you just have to, you really, you know, you say your prayers and you trust that, you know, your, your child is God's child first and that God's grace is sufficient for all your inadequacy and, um, and at the end of the day we all screwed up and God's grace you know is hopefully sufficient for us too I think it is so that's all I have do you want to talk and have questions I'm going to turn off the recorder for that